Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our warning premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. I'm very pleased today to be joined by the former Democratic Party chairman of the great state of Ohio, David Pepper, an author of multiple books, including his latest, Saving Democracy, a user's manual for every American. Welcome, David Pepper. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you, Steve. David, you were the chairman, Democratic chairman, Democratic Party chairman of the state of Ohio, uh, which has become a Republican state in recent years. Um, But up through the 2004 Bush election, uh, which I was part of in 2008, uh, was considered to be the really top swing state along with Florida that decided the election. Just in a nutshell, what what happened? This was a state that narrowly went to George Bush in 2004, Mm -hmm. uh, Barack Obama in in 2008, um, to Donald Trump by 2016, and coming into 2024, uh, this looks like a Republican state, except for and we'll talk about that in a in a minute. Some of the overreach of the party and the and the election snapback. But 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 in a nutshell, for people who are not from Ohio, talk about what happened, and and then secondly, talk about how corrupt the state has become under the one party rule of the Ohio Republican Party. Sure. And a great question. And yeah, you, it brings back painful memories when you, you were celebrating. I wasn't 04 all day. We were being told that Kerry was going to win. Um, and I was out at a poll trying to help. But but big picture, you know, I think it's fair to say that Ohio always lean, has always leaned a couple points to the right. I don't think it's been quite 50-50, especially for state out, sorry, state level elections, you know, governor and others. So if you're winning Ohio as a Democrat, you're going to win. You're going to win the country. But it's it's not a 50-50 proposition to begin. It's a little bit uphill from there. Um, but a go- obviously, good candidates like Barack Obama could win it. Um, what's happened? You know, um, a couple things. One, I mean, there is there. We have become a bellwether now. I'm afraid of how you can use the powers of state government to make a state hard to win if you're a Democrat. The, the old margins of victory that we and Barack Obama, for example, enjoyed in 8 and 12 have been made far more difficult by pretty relentless purging of voters in Ohio that, that's made the margins harder harder to achieve. You know, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden both won Cuyahoga County by a greater percentage of registered voters than Barack Obama did. But because there's so many fewer registered voters, thanks to years of purging, their actual raw vote margins were lower significantly than Barack Obama's. So the base of Ohio's Democratic side has actually gotten a little smaller. And, and you could blame Democrats for not firing up the base enough, but we also know that purging is part of that. There's no doubt that Donald Trump also, though, really started a fire in parts of the state that weren't turning out as much, true rural, but also flipped some areas like the Valley to some degree Uh, and all the way down the Ohio River on the east side of the state that Ted Strickland used to win handily. So our base has gotten smaller through purging and and less energized voters. And Donald Trump took a part of the state that used to vote for Democrats and has moved it. And and on some in some cases, because he's talked about issues like trade in the way the Democrats there used to talk about it. And you add that up in a state that used to be more swing has gotten harder to win. So you put those two together, it's harder, but it doesn't mean that a Sherrod Brown couldn't win in 24. And it also means that, that Tim Ryan, people don't give him enough credit. Tim Ryan lost by six when the governor candidate lost by 26. Massive overperformance. That's a winning effort in a normal year with good turnout. So it's still achievable for a Democrat, but it's gotten a lot harder with some of the trends I talked about. Well, Tim's a good friend of mine, and I was involved in that race, and it was as good a political campaign as I've ever been involved in. But 
you just you just can't win if the top of the ticket goes down by by 26 points Absolutely. and um and i had a theory about that race and it was that mike dewine i think was evaluated by ohio voters as he's been around for a long time uh he's not going to do anything to particularly make my life more difficult uh he's drama free uh but not so long after the election here right we're we're two years after um or less than a year after um you know the governor is seen seen to be on his back heels uh to be severely weakened um and the republican extremists in ohio have overreached and yep. been severely rebuked in in recent weeks and yep. why don't you talk about that talk about the issue and how you see that as a party chairman, mm -hmm. uh, as the winds are blowing out there, that may well be contrary to what we're constantly told is going to happen from Washington, D.C., which rarely ever does. Yeah, well, let me just say, um, Mike DeWine benefited from this longtime image of being an old type of Republican, the more modern one. He was actually quite responsible during COVID. And I think versus Tim... Mike DeWine did very well in suburbs that Tim then ended up winning, Tim Ryan ended up winning as well. So he really benefited from a, a responsible response to COVID that got him a lot of credit with more moderate voters, including women. That's all dramatically changed since uh, the, the second term began. We are now a bellwether, not as to who's going to win the presidency. We have become a bellwether as to what it looks like when a far right group of extremists takes over your state through a gerrymandered statehouse. That's what we now represent. And what this is why I wrote this first book called Laboratories of Autocracy. We are what happens. We are what can happen to a state that's been generally moderate when it's been hijacked by a gerrymandered extremist group. And that's why what we are seeing and living in Ohio is just like Missouri. It's just like Tennessee. And it's a downward spiral. And what was so great and what we see in states like Ohio is cowardly moderates who know better, like Mike DeWine, and John Husted and others in Portman before them, they never stand up to it. And so the far right takes over these states. And what issue one was, was a far right kind of a jailbreak trying to say, OK, we are living in these extremist legislative districts. We want to pass things that we know the people of Ohio don't agree with. And because we've gotten away with gerrymandering. Because the state Supreme Court is in the same hands of the, the party that we that controls our state house, we know that the only check on us, on our extremism and our lack of accountability, the only check are the people themselves going to the Constitution. And these greedy right wingers said, we're going to get rid of that check too. We don't want any checks left. And the and Mike DeWine, like he always does, like he did with gerrymandering, went along with all of it. And the great news last week is, and this is really important, a multipartisan coalition of people, Democrats, of course, but independents and a whole lot of Republicans and a whole lot of counties that you guys would have planned on winning in 04 and since when you were running those campaigns said, hell no, we may not agree on everything, but we see this for what it is. It's a power grab by extremists to destroy Ohio's democracy. We're not for it. We're voting it down. That's why Kasich was against it. That's why Bob Taft was against it. That's why Democrats were against it. And you, you'll love this, Steve, being, having run in Ohio. That's, where Delaware, that's why Delaware County voted against it. That's why Portage County, that's why Butler County, a very Republican, large county, 50-50, it almost reached a majority no. And so you saw this really broad, I would say it's sort of a new pro-democracy coalition saying, we see what this is. We may be Republicans, but this is not what democracy is about. And they joined hands with independence Democrats and we thumped the thing. So it was a great day that was basically, Mike DeWine allowed himself to be taken in by the far right like he always does. And people saw it as a far right attack on democracy and it was rejected accordingly, which was obviously a great day, not just for Ohio, but across the country. And what's the fallout, excuse me, what's the fallout been since? People, the far right politicians who brought this to Ohio voters, tried to foist it on them, are saying what about it? Are they chastened at all? No. The, again, most of these people have in their entire careers, especially the state house members, 
never been in a world of democracy. They've been in districts that they cannot lose. So their reaction isn't, just like nothing they do is the behavior you'd expect in a normal democracy. Their reaction is not also what you'd expect in a normal democracy. What would you and I do in a, if we were in anything close to competitive districts and this happened, we'd say the voters have spoken. We've learned our lesson. We're going to eat some humble pie. We'll do things differently. What have they done? Like Frank LaRose, this horrible Secretary of State we're stuck with, or the state Senate president who's basically been in gerrymandered districts his whole life. They've been, they basically repeated all the rhetoric that was called out by the voters. Well, this is just the left wing taking over. Um, the, the Matt Huffman, the Senate president said, we're going to do it again. So almost none of the people really in charge of this thing have learned a lesson. And Franklin Rose, and, and you'll recognize this behavior, he's now in a primary for Senate. So he's tripling down on the rhetoric because he wants to grab as many of those yes voters as he can for his own primary. So they haven't learned a thing. Now, what what does this side for democracy need to learn? We need to learn that when we co when we when we break bread across all sorts of divides to protect democracy, we can win. So we need to win. We need to learn our lesson, even as the other side clearly, stubbornly, in some cases with a whole lot of whining, failed to learn their lesson, which is you go for broke to attack democracy in a state like Ohio, you're going to lose. Do you do you have any sense of Trump deflating at all in Ohio with normal people, either by fatigue over the accumulation of criminal accusations? fatigue over the constancy of the news coverage or just fatigue over Trump demand? Anecdotally, I'd say yes. I mean, I, I think he will win big in the Republican primary. I think his endorsement in the Senate primary, like it did, you know, saving a J.D. Vance who was mired in third or fourth, depending on the day. I think his endorsement in the Republican primary here probably settles that primary. But but more broadly, I do think I think he's a worse candidate than he was in either 16 or 20, believe it or not, because all he's got now is this set of trials and these crazy statements about him being our retribution or whatever they are. It's not a that's not a campaign. I mean, it's just almost bizarre. So I have had you know family friends, diehard Republicans who my, who my guess is didn't didn't uh, voted for Trump in 16, 20, who now say to me things like. I can't even watch him on TV anymore. It's too much. Now, does that mean that Biden uh, wins Ohio? Maybe. I think it means it could be closer. I think it means it could be close enough that Sharon wins in a way that Tim Ryan couldn't overcome a 26-point deficit. I think the Biden-Trump uh, margin is is close enough that Sharon can win this race. I, I think I, I would predict he probably will. Because, but I So I think that there is some, and this is true nationally, uh, Trump's gotten so sort of far into the bizarreness that I think some of his appeal in 16 about forgotten America, as he would put it, and some of his appeal in 20, I think now it's really down to just such a bizarre sort of feel for that campaign, the way he talks about it. Everything's backward looking, for example. Yeah, I think there's some fatigue here. And I've heard people express it literally as I can't even watch my TV anymore when he's talking. And the person saying this, I'm I'm sensing, voted for him twice. Do you expect him to be the Republican nominee? I do. I do. I, I just, one, I think that he clearly has a lock on the party. Two, except for, to their credit, Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, the others just, and, and Pence, let's give Pence credit. I think he's speaking up somewhat on January 6th, not enough. The rest of them, you're not going to beat someone who's ahead of you if you just basically give them cover. And so the top people against him are all basically saying, yeah, all these trials are nothing but, you know, the, the weaponization of the DOJ. Like, I just think it's a group of very weak candidates. I think DeSantis is especially shown from the very beginning. Personally, this is not a major league candidate. He just. Terrible. Yeah, he's a terrible candidate. As a party chair, you are assessing candidates all the time. This guy reminds me of the worst candidates. He stands in the back of the room, can't talk to anybody, just not comfortable his own skin. You know, I, I, so I just think that the main candidates are weak already. None of them really wants to take him on. And the ones who are willing to take him on, I'm glad they are, but I don't think they're really players. So, yeah, I expect him through the worst of it. I just don't think even the worst situation 
in terms of the legal path he's stuck on right now, will divert from him winning the primary. I was talking to my friend Matthew Dowd last week, who's as smart a guy as I've ever met when it comes to American politics. And he had a couple of observations about DeSantis. And one was, basically, can you believe how bad he is at this? And it, it's shocking, right, as a, as a yeah. national candidate who's kind of been, I think, falsely lifted on this kind of hot air of, a, of assumptions by the national media absent, absent any merit. But secondly, what he said was how disconnected uh, the politics in Florida has become uh, from, from national politics. Because if, if he's their guy, um, and, and apparently he might be, judging by the, by the size of the landslide reelection, uh, it just doesn't fly in the rest of America. Yeah. And, and I wonder when you, when you look at the Democratic Party, there's something that's not talked about enough, in my view, seven years on since Trump came down the escalator. Trump is beating who exactly? Right? What meaning what what is wrong with a party that it could conceivably lose to these people? What what is it when you honestly look at the Democratic Party? And and I come at it from a perspective as a former Republican who was always a moderate in my politics, that both of these parties are extremely important institutions in the history of the country, in world history, uh, for the advancement of human freedom and, and democracy. But, but what what is it about the Democratic Party that it has become so estranged from so many Americans, that this MAGA movement is seen as any type of alternative at all? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, um, and it goes back to something I really focused on in the in the book that you mentioned, this Saving Democracy book. Uh, you know, I think on most of our core issues, we actually are in step with mainstream America, you know, a middle class based economics, public education, uh, a woman's right to choose. Uh, but I think in many ways, the way we run doesn't highlight that. Uh, normally, when the question is called on these issues, like in Kansas, we win. Or like in Ohio last week, we win. But one of my biggest sort of passions, if you hear me at all, is we got to run everywhere. Because if we don't run everywhere, we're not communicating what we're for. We're letting them communicate who we are without us actually fighting back. And so what's happening? And when I say we're not running everywhere, that we're not even making an effort everywhere, uh, it's 50% of the Tennessee Republicans who voted out those two Justins, no opponent the prior November. 50% of them, basically. Um, Oklahoma, it's above 60. Texas and most states, it's in the 30 or 40 percentage. And when we're not in the fight in these areas, a, we're not holding extremism accountable, and their extremism is a loser. We are seeing it lose all over. We saw it lose with every election-denying sector state candidate in a swing state last November. They lost everywhere. We see it lose again when it's exposed, and they're bringing it out more and more, the DeSantis and Trump primary. But if we're not in the fight, exposing it for what it is and then saying what we're for, they're winning. And they're not only winning, they're defining the terms. So I'll say it in this way. So much, I see so much people, so many people, sorry, taking credit for the good things that the Biden and Democratic bills did around infrastructure and chips in all these red states. In, in Ohio, the lieutenant governor runs around Ohio and he takes credit for all of it. And if you're not running it everywhere, you're not even there to raise your hand and say, oh, actually, you had nothing to do with this. That was our side doing it. We're the ones that lifted the middle class. We're the ones that invested in infrastructure. Um, and so what do they do when we're not running? They blame us for problems. They mischaracterize why those problems happen. You know, the reason that rural schools are suffering in a lot of states isn't because of some caravan from Mexico. It's because the state houses voted to decrease funding for those schools. 
But if you're not running everywhere, they get to blame it on the people that aren't even in the in the game. And then we also aren't taking credit for what we're doing. So I think that on core issues, like you go back to and, and you, I assume, agreed with me that Joe Biden's state of the State of the Union was a masterful speech. Almost everything he talked about, you know, whether whether it's economics or or Social Security, whatever, was very popular. And it was a good speech. The reason they shouted him down was they didn't want people to hear about unpopular positions they have. But when you're not running everywhere, you're not able to give that communication where it needs to be heard and you end up getting turned upside down all over. So I think that core messaging and core positions are actually quite strong, but we're not executing in a way that we're having most people in all the places you're, you're talking about hear our message. And so I think there's a lot of work to do. And this is what I go through in this book. Build an infrastructure that values running everywhere, that says we want you stepping up to run, even in tough places. We celebrate you as a patriot when you do that. And then when you're in those places, message on the things that they are doing badly in those places and all over states like Ohio that are corrupt. You mentioned the corruption. We have massive corruption in Ohio. The biggest bribery scandal in history, the sp former speaker went to jail a month ago or two months ago. And every time you see a corrupt state, you see terrible outcomes. Ohio public schools were ranked fifth in the nation 14 years ago. Now we're in the mid-20s. You, you see small towns collapsing. Again, not because of caravans from Mexico, because of their policies and state houses not working. Run everywhere and then explain to them the reason these things are happening is because of their policies and we're going to do better. And that's how you have someone like um, the, the new Democrat, Laura Kelly, the second term Democratic governor of Kansas. She ran on issues like that and won. So I think it all starts with a different mindset. Be a national party. Run everywhere. Hold extremists accountable everywhere and run hard on issues that frustrate everyday people that often are not doing well because of the policies coming out of these rigged these rigged state houses. Do you do you view the extremism and the corruption as deeply linked? Absolutely. Yeah. It's all this, it's all once you have a I have these little sort of charts I go through in my in my book. Basically, they're the two interests who love gerrymandered state houses are the extremists, national, not just in-state, national extremists who know that their worldview would lose every time in a fair democracy. They know Kansas would be their future forever or Ohio this last week. If you have a straight up vote on abortion bans, no exceptions that send rape victims to other states, they will lose every time they know it. So they want a, they want a gerrymandered state house. But who also wants a gerrymandered state house? The special interests. Because often, what do these special interests want? They want a piece of the public pie. When they get the public pie, public outcomes disintegrate. Take public school money, give it to for-profit scams like they did in Ohio, and they were caught doing so. The public schools decline. So uh, extremism and corruption are literally the outgrowths and ultimately the drivers of gerrymandering because in a fair democracy, the corruption wouldn't work. The poor outcomes would lead to accountability for the politicians creating those outcomes. Once you gerrymander, they know that they can have terrible schools and worse health outcomes and no infrastructure and still get reelected. Just like they know they can pass things like abortion bans, no exception to rape or incest, and get reelected. So both extremism and the corruption are sort of tied to the hip with these, with these broken state houses. And that's why we see what we see in Ohio, a downward spiral of both corruption and extremism. And, and the smart ones know, they you know, think of, and you, you again, you've done this longer than I have. If you are a politician and you have dedicated your career to a path of extremism out of touch with your voters and corruption for which you could be held accountable, you have all these screwed up incentives as in, one being keep attacking democracy, because if you ever allowed a fair democracy back into your system, back in your district, you know that the candidate would beat you by pointing out how extreme you are and how corrupt you are. So once they're on this course of extremism and corruption, they really have this intense incentive to keep gerrymandering. And that's why you see these states, people think it can never get worse. They can't keep suppressing. They keep gerrymandering. They know they have to because they would never survive in a fair democracy with records as extreme and as honestly corrupt as many of the records are.
there, there's a couple of things I want to I want to talk to you about, but let me start here. The Trump MAGA faction in this country, what number do you put it at? I mean, my sense is it always shows up in the some level in the 30s. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll stipulate to to 35 percent. Yeah, that's what I and, and I'll and I'll say 35 percent of the country is into this, wants it, likes it, you know, president, president for life. Now, the, the danger for the rest of us, how that group takes power is is them plus enough apathy to have a temporary majority where they take power and are able able to structurally do things from the system that make the 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 practice of democracy very very difficult right. um when when you think about how to beat them I, i'm very concerned right now about something that i see playing out and and i wonder what your reaction to it is first the no labels organization is not getting as much coverage, I think, as it deserves to get. But secondarily, if they are on the level, and that's an if, and, and by on the level, I mean if they have the resources to secure ballot access, which is a, as you know, will will be in all 50 states a, a cost that is that is upwards of a hundred million dollars in cash, but but they say they can do it. They say they're raising the money to do it. So I I presume that they can do it, right? That they're that they're not saying that to go out and fall flat on their faces. If they do do it, the Democratic Party, the Biden White House, doesn't get a vote on whether they do it or not. They're in a game then that's essentially a three-way race. And a three-way race changes the dynamics of the race. One of the ways it changes the dynamics is it breaks the 17-state monopoly where presidential races are decided, and it expands the field to at least 35 40 states, bringing down the winning threshold, right, to the high 30s, which is which is a number within reach of Trump's hardcore base. So my first question, how concerned are you when you hear Washington Democrats talk about the race to come? Talk about it in terms that discount the possibility that, in fact, the race that's coming doesn't look anything like the race they're talking about. I mean, I'm concerned partly because of no labels and partly more broadly that when we basically only go into the states that we think matter in the current conception of swing states, we give up so much of the battlefield of democracy to the other side. So I, I am actually concerned be, before we even bring them into the conversation. I think that the other side is basic. Their front line of attacking democracy and advancing extremism are the very states where we largely aren't there. And, and because we're not there, we make it easy for them. So I think we already need to have a much broader strategy. Democracy itself is what's at stake right now. If they're using state houses to make most of their progress, which they are, we should be there anyway. But to your point, yeah, the no labels adds a whole new and dangerous wrinkle. And I go back, I, I'm not, a, I don't want to claim to be a, a, a history professor, but I, there's so much parallel in our history to what we're dealing with right now. And the biggest parallel with, with what you're describing is there was a pretty serious faction for a number of years against allowing white supremacy to retake back over the South. But those white supremacists were dedicated. And I don't know what the number was, but they were a big number in the South. And the reason they end up succeeding is they never gave up their unity. 
And at some point, the folks that were dedicated to stopping them, like Ulysses Grant, who grew up not far from here, very proud of what his work was, they divided over other issues. And once they allowed their divisions on economic issues and other things to divide up what was a majority that had been standing up to white supremacy, once they allowed themselves to divide, then the white supremacists in the South won. And all of a sudden we had Jim Crow for a century. And the same thing could happen here. It's mid-30s. It's mid-30s. And if we if we allow the, the you know the, the the 50s and 60s that don't agree with this guy to divide up in the way that you're talking about, in the way that another candidate might divide it up, we give away a majority that otherwise would prevail. And the in the the history of our country is you let that happen the wrong time, and you could be living with its consequences for generations. I wrote about an Ohio man last week, James Garfield, uh, who is not well remembered uh, by the by the country. Um, but when you look at American history, um, this period of time that you just referred to was profoundly shaped by two murders, two assassinations. So Abraham Lincoln in 1865, and we talk about Lincoln as America's greatest country, as excuse me, as America's greatest president, but we forget and don't talk a lot about the fact that he was preceded by the man who before Trump was the worst president in American history, who's now the second worst because of Trump. And he was followed by the man who was the second worst who's now the third worst, Andrew Johnson. So you come to 1880 and Garfield, uh, who only makes it 200 days in office before he shot a combat veteran of the Civil War, committed to civil rights, uh, committed to the protection of uh, Black American civil liberties in the, in the South. His murder uh, sets back civil rights really in this, in this country as you, as you suggested for a hundred years. And, and the fact of the matter uh, is that a devastating defeat, an absolute defeat in civil war, a few decades later has twisted into the lost myth that there was righteousness in the Southern cause. And that myth persists today. And it has not been dealt with in this country by our American society yet. But I want to ask you a political question um, that, that's steeped in, in what we just talked about. This minority, this 35%, that through deed, through action, through result, is, is hostile to the concepts of American democracy, which require both sides to recognize you may lose the election and you'll have to try again next time to the concepts of pluralism, equal rights. The ethos of much of the media, a lot of the opposition in this era has been to seek understanding of these people. Why do they feel the way that they feel? Why are they aggrieved the way that they are? Why are they angry the way they are? And I've never been interested in it. Just like I've never been interested at all in why Trump says the things he says around why he says it. I just take everything he says literally and seriously because at the end of the day, there were people who followed him around carrying suitcases with the nuclear weapons codes. I just know that that 35%, that no matter what the act of corruption is, what the act of depravity is, what the vandalism towards the country is, what the assault on our democracy is, they will be with him, Trump over country, 100% of the time and seven years in, there's no place to compromise. Politically, a minority faction is going to bring the majority to submission or the majority in this country 
who believes in America and American ideals is going to snuff out peacefully and at the ballot box this minority faction and time is not on the side of the majority any longer seven years in what's your what's your reaction to that i i generally agree i i i mean both books i've written are literally about that they're in i hate to make it even worse for a second but i do think this goes beyond trump i mean this a lot of the work to lock in minority rules started before trump ran it started after obama won and it's part of a long history of of, of some people being really um, you know, threatened by a diverse majority getting its way. And that's why some of the worst beginning cur- precursors of this began in 11 with gerrymandering and with, with certain types of voter suppression directly aimed at the Obama coalition. And it's been in place. It's been working all this time. And it began before Trump ran. He's made it worse. He's fueled it. He's brought up the worst of some people. But I will say some of the things they're trying to do, like issue one, if Trump were locked up tomorrow, they'd still try and do it. So he is a threat. And if he wins, we know how it would be worse than ever. But we also have to deal with the, there's a deeper effort here that it's the, at the state level that already was working to lock in minority rule through taking through through certain instruments of government, including state houses, gerrymandering, courts, etc., and so, and, and the reason, I mean, I had no plan. I, I stepped aside as party chair in December of, of 20. I had no plans to write any books at all. But in about April 21, I had your same alarm bells in my head, like, my God, we're not seeing this threat. They are going after democracy itself, and we are still living as if they're not. We still are assuming that they're going to play by the same rules as we are, that they're not willing to break the law, which they are clearly willing to do. And so I literally wrote the first book in a matter of months, almost as a alarm bells, see the battle for what it is. It's not some sort of clean little battle for a few federal swing states. This is an all out battle for democracy itself. It's been the same battle we've been in for centuries. Those are the stakes. And if you're going to win that battle, you got to fight it very differently than the short sort of cycle mindset of federal battles. So I've been alarmed about it. I've tried to get the word out as best I can. And once you see, though, that it's a long battle for democracy, you also can start to see, though, how to win it. One, to realize it is a long battle. It's not some short cycle battle. Two, it's a battle you got to take everywhere. The front line is in these states. So go start contesting in these states. Start. This is how Tim Ryan ran his campaign way. Start campaigning in the parts of the states that we've even been in, in too long. Uh, start using far more of your footprint in life. Don't just give a little money. Don't just do a little volunteering a few months to go. This is a, as you fight it, as Steve Bannon fights on the other side, they don't quit in December. They're not quitting after last week. You got to fight it all the time. You got to use everything you have in your network, in your life to lift the battle, to lift democracy. And then of course, you we have to focus on Trump, but you also have to start to see and this is something we haven't seen. It goes beyond Trump. When Biden won in, no- in November of 20 and beat Trump, but then Republicans down the ballot still won the Arizona State House and all those other state houses. Those Republicans within months were attacked, as we saw, were attacking democracy through phony audits, more gerrymandering, depriving voters of water at polls. So don't just have the contrast be, let's have Biden beat Trump run the extremism that we now know they're for after Dobbs especially, make that contrast clear through every state house race. So I'm, I'm alarmed like you. I feel good about a winning streak. Once the people who care about democracy start to see the battle as a state as a state level battle, we've won in Kansas. We won the Wisconsin Supreme Court race. We won in Ohio. And that, that shows you the potential of the pro-democracy majority when it's when it's energized and when it sees a risk to democracy right in front of it, we have to wage that battle and make it clear that that's what's on in 24, this November, by the way, in Virginia as well. And that's why right now, recruit everywhere. Get candidates on these ballots at all levels everywhere and gear up, not in mid-24 for November 24, start gearing up now. If we do all that, I think we can win. 
But if we don't do that, as you're saying, yeah, we are in literally the make or break moment for democracy that we and these little kids behind me in these photos, they'll spend the rest of their lives digging out from it if we don't succeed in the next couple of years with a real pro-democracy strategy and not just a win a few swing state strategy. So uh, so let me ask you, let me ask you a question about that, because there's a there's a there's a threshold issue. In, in American politics right now, so far as it concerns Donald Trump, right? So what, what the American people, the body politic, and just take aside party labels writ large, the country does not want the Trump-Biden rematch. Do, do you agree with that? I mean, I think polling would, would suggest that, yeah. Okay. Now, the, the Democratic Party nationally, right, is, is going to deliver on their side of the equation in, in terms of giving to the American people a candidate they don't want to run against to run against Trump, Biden, Trump. Now, I'm going to say the one thing that drives me more nuts that anything that's said by any national Democrat is this. And it's the idea that they want Trump in the general election because he's an easy candidate for Biden to beat. So there's a duality around Trump, right? And there's Trump, the threat. And I think he is a threat. I think he is a threat to the continuity of the American Republic. And then there is Trump, the prop, the boogeyman, Voldemort. Put Trump's name into the email, you raise money. Put Trump into the ad, you get ratings. Put put Trump into the newscast, right? At least it used to, right? The numbers, the numbers go up. And so I don't want to see Trump come forward, right, into a general election, because I don't think there's a more irresponsible position in America or a more delusional one, which is the idea that he can't win a general election again, because he absolutely can win a general election again. Any, any, do you take any issues with anything I, with anything I said when I say that, he, no, he's he's obviously incredibly dangerous. I think these things are very unpredictable. Uh, when I say that I think he's going to be the candidate, it's not because I necessarily want that. I just think that he will. Um, and I don't know. I, I don't. I understand that. I'm, and I'm with you. No, I, I agree. I mean, you don't want this man well, only one ballot away from being president. And that's a highly, exactly. highly risky proposition that I think we're all going to be dealing with. I think I think that 50 years from now, there's going to be all sorts of infrastructure in this country. And you're going to look back like we did growing up at things that were built during the Depression years. When was that built? Oh, it was built in the 1930s. It was built in the 1950s. You know, Joe Biden is the infrastructure president. Right. And then some. Um that people have dreamed about for a couple of decades and and his and his legacy on that front um puts him in in my view on the on the same plane as Eisenhower right um i think that he is the most effective foreign policy president um coming out of a big ditch um since George Herbert Walker Bush um if you look at the end of the Cold War, um, the first Gulf War, extremely successful. But I'm going to I'm going to challenge you on a on a Biden proposition and, and give you a chance to make the make the Biden case. R- respond to this argument, which is none of that matters. Not a thing. He was elected to do one thing. Break the extremist threat to the country. And it's still here. Didn't get the job done. 
Therefore, maybe it's time for Gavin Newsom. Maybe it's time for Gretchen Whitmer. Because at the end of the day, the defense of democracy has not succeeded thus far against this MAGA threat. Now, what, and, what, somebody, and somebody, and it's the top guy in the world we used to live in, is the guy that gets the blame for that. Not that he's a criminal, not that he's a bad person, but that he fell short. And in fact, this is someone who has fallen short doing that while doing all of these other great things. But it doesn't mitigate that on this thing, the threat, in fact, may be worse. Well, let me respond. Um, there have been moments I've been frustrated about the the intensity of the battle for democracy. I think early on, when I don't think I don't think there was enough attention to it or sensitivity to it. But I, my bigger response um, out of those, aside from moments of frustration, is this is not a conventional political battle. This is a long, much longer term battle, and I don't think it is the kind of battle you win immediately or even in one term. This is long. This is the this is the arc of our country. And so I I would say, you know, again, I'm not here to represent Joe Biden, but I would say that that he did articulate late in November, late in 22, the threat. And we started to see some counter cyclical results in terms of some of the underpinnings of why we've been losing democracy when we elected those when we did defeated every election denier running for secretary of state that in a normal off year, quote unquote, off year midterm, we would have lost those races. But that extremism was exposed. We picked up the Pennsylvania State House. What was it? Double digit seats we picked up in the midterm where we're supposed to lose. We picked up the Michigan State Senate, State House. So we, we've won these, these special elections. Again, normally you wouldn't win these when the, we have the White House. So in the long arc in the battle for democracy, I, I, Trump remains the threat that he is. We have to defeat him next November. But what I like that we're starting to see, and, and I, I, I'm an optimist in the end, despite the dark topics of my book, which is the democracies under attack and the threat, we're starting to see some pickup in the awareness of how we protect democracy. We're starting to gain some wins like we did in Ohio last week. And in the long arc, I'm feeling a little better than I was two years ago, because two years ago, we didn't even see these things as a mattering. Um, but... I, I think that there are there some voters who are thinking what you did, which is I thought voting rights would be more protected over the next over the last four years. I thought gerrymandering might see an end that it hasn't. Um, I'm sure there's some frustration, but I also would say the battle for democracy is a longer term battle. And I think, as you said, in 50 years from now, in 50 years from now, we'll be able to see were the years 21, 22, 23, and 24 together, the moment where people saw Trump, saw the state-level attack, and geared up in a way that defeated over the coming years that followed this moment of weariness or not. Um, I think it's a little soon to say, well, someone had a couple of years to solve it and didn't. I just don't think the broader battle for democracy is is determined on that uh, time frame, even though, as, as we're both saying, we're at sort of a uh, the inflection point of that battle right now through the next couple of years. Here's the thing that I fundamentally feel disoriented about and I can't get a handle on. And it's how much of this is all completely illusory. Oz behind the curtain. And and let me let me ask the get into it this way i i'm looking at your kids behind you i am a um i'm a girl dad and i took my 10 year old to the taylor swift concert and um talking about it afterwards and uh so i saw it in los angeles must have been ninety thousand people um sold it out six nights in a row um and i said to my wife i i have never been anywhere with that many women in my life not even close. Um, easy kind of guess, 90% of the crowd 
female. Um, little girls wearing their friendship bracelets, right? Women in their 30s, in their 20s, people are handing out their friendship bracelets to each other. Now, I have a good sense of how the media covers Trump and the ubiquity with which they cover him and the attention that the Trump rally gets as crazy as they are, as small as they've become. Now, I suspect if Donald Trump was selling out stadiums, right, with with 85, 90,000 people all over America going full MAGA, like our level of being freaked out about that would be incredibly high. Now, he's covered like he does do that. When in fact his world has become pretty small, right? Right, in in terms of the places he goes and the crowds he attracts, in in essence, certainly the media doesn't cover the world through the prism of the ninety thousand a person nightly gathering where the friendship bracelets are are being handed out. They're both real, right? They're they're both happening. Um, violence isn't breaking out all around us everywhere all the time in America. Normal people don't and never have liked having politics in their face 24-7. And all of the experts and all of the pollsters have basically been wrong for seven years. Everything that you're saying anecdotally, well, when you look out in the country, when the test comes, you get this quiet result. And over and over and over again, Americans are saying no. And to me, what you can never know, because we're 52, what was the sense of urgency to danger in 1939, in 1938? What did it feel like? The people who were urgently alarmed, who turned out to be correct, what did the zeitgeist in the culture feel, feel like? And you just can't know. You really, you really can't get a handle on it, save for the fact that you know that in democracies, people rally towards facing danger very, very late. They move late. But when they face it, historically, at least in this country, they've done so very, very decisively. And so I wonder if you think about that and wonder how much of what we perceive as the threat in front of us has already largely dissipated. The, the prognosticators in Washington just haven't gotten caught up to it as it works its way out, and they just don't pay attention to the actual election results where these things are worked out already in places like Ohio. Anything there there? Yeah, I mean, I think you're I, I think that the, the other side has done a very good job of hiding their extremism and how it impacts everyday people for a long time. I mean, the, but they know it. They know that if fully exposed, it will cost them election. And what's happened, especially since Dobbs, but Trump did it. Marjorie Taylor Greene does it every day. People are seeing it now in a way they weren't. And when they see it, they clearly are reacting to vote against it, either because they're tired of it or they're scared of it. And that's why... You know, again, I, we should take it seriously. We should run knowing that if they ever win, the danger of that is horrible. But now that people are seeing, and the post-Dobbs really matters here, it's not just that they see a threat to democracy. They're starting to see through things like Dobbs, but other issues. Well, the reason they're attacking democracy is to inflict things on my life that not only do I not agree with, but that will make my life a lot worse. And once they see the connection between the attack on democracy, this this, you know, flirting with authoritarianism and the everyday issue like post jobs that will change their life because 
a minority is going to rule over them on issues they care about, that combination is really dangerous for their side. And as you see, when when people who may not want to engage in the 30,000 foot level, you know, conversation on democracy or gerrymandering, see, oh, the result of that, the result of that issue one is my own choices in my life where I live in Ohio. It's that 10 year old rape victim being forced to go to Indiana. That combination is very dangerous for them. And if we do a good job of making it clear that that's why they're attacking democracy, that's what Donald Trump will do in your state, in your community. That's what, you know, that state house will do in your community. That's when I think we, we, we pile together some wins. And the reason going back to your, your point about no labels, the reason I so worry about them is because that will interfere, I believe, with the potential of a majority finally coming together next year and saying, we're done with all this. And the danger they're bringing is a disruption of something that I hope, you know, I, I hope and I think if we all do everything right, that we can finally say, you know, the hell with this Trump stuff and the hell with the extremism all the way down the state level issue where they're attacking democracy. And and so anything that gets in the way of, I think, which some momentum and a little winning streak that's building in, in more quiet elections that can really come through in a big election is a threat. And that's why I agree with you about the, the, the threat that is to what otherwise could be a nice winning streak for democracy that, that we're building and seeing happening right now. That that coalition, which, which you're referencing, is a coalition in its component parts, right? Its largest part will be Democrats. Right. Its second largest element will be independents. And it's and its third largest element, sizable and very important one, will be disaffected Republicans, um, who you need to be part of the coalition. Um, we're running out of time here. Let me let me give you the last pitch here. Make the pitch, right? That that you would like to see, you know, made out of the White House, out of out of the National Democratic Party to Americans. Um, that tells them to come together into a coalition. I mean, the one the one thing that that we have not heard in seven years is is basically someone from the Democratic Party, I think, very directly saying, I don't care. You're a Democrat, you're an independent, you're a Republican. I'm talking to you today as an American. Right. Well, I mean, what I would say, uh, and I'll do my best at this, but I, I think one side has clearly lost its way and it is caught up in a very fringe approach to almost everything in, in American society today that most people just do not agree with. They sometimes hide it well, but we see it playing out in Florida. We see it play out with a 10-year-old rape victim being sent to Indiana because they passed something here that only 10% of viewer, fewer of Ohioans agree with. And that side understands that its viewpoint is actually deeply unpopular. And the reason we keep running into things like issue one or gerrymandering is because they're trying to keep in place policies that would never sustain the broad, the broad majority consensus of, as you say, Republicans, independents, and Democrats in Ohio. Uh, and so I think what Democrats need to pitch on is is going to bat for a middle class a middle class based economics that lifts people all over the, all over states like Ohio, uh, not the narrow one we see from the other side. A belief in certain public institutions like public schools that I don't care if you're rural or you're in urban Ohio; these are the centers of our communities. Let's let's lift them. So the, I think there's a broad common agreement on most of where America needs to go. One side doesn't agree with that viewpoint. That's why they're trying to suppress democracy. And the other side, I think, needs to do a much better job of bringing everyone together around those issues. I think remove a lot of the crazy stuff. I think that Joe Biden, as you said, has done a very good, good job on most of those issues. I think his state of the state, the state of the union speech actually weaved them together very well. And I think in the coming year, the assignment is to take those elements of that common sort of fabric of what we want to get done. And to make sure we're talking about it well, we're talking about it all parts of this country, and we're exposing that the other side doesn't agree with almost any of those things. And most of that agenda on the other side is something that at best 35% agree on. And in many cases, 
far less. And the reason why we see them always rigging the rules of democracy is because they know that and they know they would lose if we have a straight up vote on, on what we want to do versus what they want to do. Well, we'll leave it there. David Pepper, thank you very, very much for taking the time this afternoon. Um, wise words and great counsel for everybody listening. American democracy uh, is under threat. It is not self-sustaining. Uh, we're approaching the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It's a momentous achievement and, and one that will require this generation of Americans to recommit uh, to a sense of duty, obligation, and responsibility, and also common sense. Um, you know, I tell my kids this, someone will always be in charge. And, and in the case of a state like Ohio, if you give away the right uh, to write your future, uh, the people who take it may not have your best interests at heart. But, but rest assured, somebody will take it. You show you show indifference towards who's running things. People take advantage of it every every time. One of the central lessons of history and, and one of the real dangers in a democracy.